For obvious reasons, COVID-19 has been the biggest health story in town for most of the year. But there's also been some very strange COVID-related medical news, which has flown a bit under the radar. Well, speaking of the lockdown, there are lower levels of what they call influenza-like illness around the country this year, and experts are linking it to the COVID-19 response. In a certain sense, we're all participating in a worldwide experiment. The data is starting to trickle in, and medical researchers are both excited and occasionally perplexed. Big uh, US research showed a, a reduction in hospitalisation people by up to 48% heart attacks during the COVID period. Kia ora, I'm Emile Donovan, and today on The Detail, we're taking a look at some indirect health effects of the pandemic. It's early days yet to make sense of it, and researchers are still sifting through the data. And in some cases, it's just guesswork. First up, premature births. Every year, around 60,000 babies are born in New Zealand, and about 5,000 of them are born preterm. So if you think about pregnancy as being 40 weeks duration, so the date that people are given as their due date would be 40 weeks, we would consider it a premature or preterm birth anything below 37 weeks. That is Dr Katie Grimm. She's an Associate Professor of Maternal and Perinatal Health at the University of Auckland. We talk about viability when they've got a chance of surviving. Constantly sort of changing, but about 23 to 24 weeks. So, so really a premature birth is from about 23 weeks through to 37 weeks. A baby that is born at, let's say, 36 weeks compared to a baby born at sort of 24 weeks, would a, a, a difference be drawn between those two premature births despite the fact that they both fall under that sort of umbrella term? Absolutely, and it's really important when we talk about preterm births, we think about all the different categories. So one way to look at it is, by the gestational age at which they're born. And we do have some terms, so extreme, early, moderate, late preterm. But, you know, I think, you know, the ones that we would be really most concerned about, those extreme preterm births, are sort of below the 28-week point. And then they've got the sort of moderate preterm births. And then the ones that are happening sort of 34, 35, 36 weeks, really we would refer to those as late preterm births. And the reasons for thinking about them quite differently is obviously their care needs are quite different but also what the potential outcomes are quite different. And I guess if you're thinking about categories of preterm birth, it's also really important to think about what's caused it. Just over half of preterm births will be spontaneous. That is, women have either their waters have broken or they've developed contractions. But then just under half will actually be medically indicated preterm births. So the woman hasn't gone into labour, but there is something either putting her or her baby's risk and health at risk. Um, and so sometimes we would actually plan a preterm birth um, because we think the balance of health favours the early birth comparing, compared to continuing on with the pregnancy. The specific cause of a premature birth often isn't clear, but there are risk factors. Having a previous premature birth, for example, smoking cigarettes or using drugs while pregnant, some infections and chronic health conditions can contribute, as can stressful life events, a short interval between pregnancies and problems with the uterus, cervix or placenta. And as Katie mentioned, not all premature births are unplanned and not all premature births are really bad. But as a rule, the more premature a baby is, the greater the risk of developing serious health complications. Breathing, heart and brain problems, issues with gastrointestinal function, the baby's metabolism and an underdeveloped immune system are all associated with very premature births. 
And longer term, they can lead to increased chance of cerebral palsy, learning difficulties, issues with vision and teeth development, and increased chance of chronic health issues. But during lockdown, something weird happened. Doctors in completely different countries around the world noticed the number of very premature births had dropped off a cliff. I think, you know, if we look at the first sort of reports, there's a region in Ireland that looked at the first four months of this year, and they've seen a, a, an over 70% reduction, but only in very low birth weight babies. So looking at babies' birth weight is a sort of surrogate marker for the actual age they were born at. So it was only in the very low birth weight, it wasn't in the later ones. Here's Professor Roy Phillip from University Maternity Hospital Limerick talking to the Irish broadcaster RTE about that research. So what we found is there is almost like a 73% reduction in the number of very low birth weight babies born here during the first four months in comparison to the previous years. And then Denmark um, have also um, now published a a nationwide registry looking at a five-year period um, prior to to the pandemic and then since. And they've seen a 90% reduction, but again, in these really very early low birth weight babies, and they haven't seen the same trends in the others. Um, There has recently been a systematic review where they put as many studies together as they can of COVID in pregnancy and over 2,500 pregnancies, and they have reported a higher rate of preterm birth, sitting at 22%. But actually, the vast majority of those, 18% of them were medically indicated. So essentially, the mums were really sick with covid and so a decision was made to deliver the baby. So it didn't seem to be that it was spontaneous preterm birth that was causing those high rates. So, um, yes, it certainly seems, you know, in other countries and other states, um, Melbourne, for example, have reported something similar. So how are things tracking here in New Zealand? In New Zealand, I think certainly anecdotally, it all seemed a lot quieter during lockdown, and that wasn't just on, you know, all of the wards. It was seen in Annika as well, and it has been reported that our occupancy rate was lower. But actually, looking at preterm birth rates, we've looked from the 1st of January through to the start of June, and we've we've seen no difference if we compare pre-lockdown to lockdown in our actual rates of preterm birth. But obviously, over time, we can look in more detail, and it might be that we've had less of the very preterm babies, and therefore it seems like NICU is less busy because obviously the, the very young ones stay the longest. So it's really, really interesting things for us to look at. It does take time to get um, sort of population-based data, and it's useful and interpretable. But there are certainly some really good theories about why it might have happened, and some of them good and some of them bad. And so definitely there are some lessons that we should be looking to learn and potentially things that we could do in the future. Roy Phillip has a couple of ideas as to what sorts of factors might have gone into this decrease. It is not because we have done anything special. Um, So that is what prompted us to look what the lockdown could do. We think it could be less trust for the mothers or pregnant women, and they will have the... They'll be working from home or they'll be taking better rest, better nutrition um, and also better environmental factors like less pollution. And another important aspect we thought is less commuting, no commuting related stress aspects, physical work, uh, on-call work, night work, 
all of these are improving. And also the chance of infection, the common viral infections which children could bring home from crash or play school, that is coming down because children are also at home. The partner support, which is very important during pregnancy, potentially improved because they also could have been working it from home. So these are the main factors we thought could be contributing to it. But Katie Groom says you've got to consider the gloomy side of the equation too. It may be in some cases it's a bad thing that we had less premature births. And that's coming back to those medically indicated ones where either the mother or baby could be sick. Um, we think that there has been some reluctance for people to come into hospital. Um, you know, fear of infection has meant that people are less likely to present. And we encourage every woman, if your baby hasn't moved normally every day from 28 weeks onwards, then you should let us know on that day and come in and be checked out. And it may be that there's some people that didn't do that. And unfortunately, the consequences have been um, an increased risk of stillbirth. And there has been one study that's just come out from St. George's Hospital in London. It's a small study. And I think you know, there's lots of potential ways we could critique that paper. But it has shown an increase in their stillbirth rates during the pandemic time. So there is the possibility that with less hospital visits, virtual appointments, less availability of scan, that actually we missed some sick babies that should have been delivered that instead of being premature births have potentially become stillbirths. So, you know, as I say, there's lots of good things that we should look at, but we also need to look at the other side. And I think the most, you know, the sort of first steps will be seeing, first of all, did it really happen in New Zealand? And if it did, which groups was it? Was it really just those really, really premature babies? Um, but also, what was the reasons of the premature birth that, that stopped? Was it the medically indicated or was it the spontaneous? And then that will really help us sort of to tease out where the positive effects were or the negative effects. And then we can work on those, hopefully, if we have more lockdowns, that we avoid the negative ones. But we look at the positive ones for how we can have impact in the future. Let's turn now to one of the leading causes of death in New Zealand behind only heart disease and all combined types of cancer, stroke. About 9,000 Kiwis have a stroke every year. They're essentially a sudden interruption of the blood flow to part of the brain, which can cause that part of the brain to stop working. And unless the blood flow is restored really quickly, can damage those brain cells, sometimes irreparably. While they can happen to anyone, three quarters of all strokes happen in patients over the age of 65. Other risk factors include your family history, smoking again, diabetes, high cholesterol, being overweight, drinking too much booze and high blood pressure, among others. Again, overseas research shows the number of stroke presentations, as well as heart attacks, has dropped tremendously during lockdown. Research from the USA's Centre for Disease Control and Prevention shows emergency room visits in the 10 weeks after COVID was declared a national emergency dropped by 20% for strokes and nearly 25% for heart attacks. A big uh, US research from August in the New England Journal of Medicine showed a, a reduction in um, hospitalisation people by up to 48% heart attacks. That's Dr Hamish Jameson, a medical specialist in older person's health at the University of Otago's Christchurch hub. But Hamish says this lack of presentations, while it might look positive on the outside, is probably a symptom of something a bit more worrying. It's just indicative of um, people who have some of these symptoms, the chest pain and, and that not actually 
people not presenting to hospital as much because of the fear of contracting COVID, either of spreading it or exposing themselves to COVID. The number of people turning up to the emergency department has fallen dramatically. Doctors are worried people aren't getting the help they need because they fear they might catch the virus. Alarmingly, that includes two patients who turned up three days after having heart attacks. Hamish says when the COVID lockdown was first announced, there were big-time concerns for geriatricians like him. If people are going to isolate and it's an infected organism, people who are isolating won't get that. But that has secondary effects on the older population. And there's two of those. The first is, you know, there were tens of thousands of people isolating alone. And loneliness can lead to um, worse um, anxiety and depression, pain and other physical conditions. And it's been a very big problem which in this prolonged lockdown in New Zealand. The second thing is, Older people have chronic, even have chronic conditions, whether it's emphysema, um, heart failure, uh, pain, etc. And those conditions, you know, are best managed on a month-to-month basis by GPs or nurses. And older people are afraid of going out to get that medical help. So those chronic conditions, which are progressive, are, and um, are not going to get the same attention that they've had if there wasn't uh, COVID around. There's an interesting theory here that older people didn't want to go outside, partly because of fears of contracting COVID, but also partly because of fears of overwhelming the health system. This was also reflected in cancer screenings. The recently retired oncologist Dr David Lamb said last month that missed cancer screenings could mean some 1,300 people could have cancer and not know it because they hadn't been tested. And modelling from the UK suggests this could result in the deaths of up to 400 people before the health system catches up, though it could be months or even years before we know the truth to this. Many of these screenings would have been cancelled because they, they couldn't take place during Level 4 lockdown, but others may be from people reluctant to venture outside. The irony here being that because everyone else was staying home too, hospitals were actually really quiet. Certainly in the level four lockdown, I've heard from a number of sources, GPs and specialists, that presentations were much lower than normal. Um, And also people who came in to see their GPs were a lot sicker than they would have been. Again, with this level three lockdown in Auckland, I am hearing um, that older people aren't presenting as much to GPs, although we don't have any firm data on that. People weren't presenting as much in Level 4 and they were trying to manage themselves and that's well known internationally. Things like September 11 or the Christchurch earthquakes. People uh, think of other, they think the health system needs to focus on the emergency and they don't um, present themselves to hospital. But uh, there, is, there are risks to that and um, I think that people's um, health may not be as good because of it. Being able to share problems the ability to connect with people helps mood, it helps pain, and it's well known that people who are isolated generally do a lot worse. Um, their progression from injuries or painful conditions is slower and not as good. And even conditions, heart failure, emphysema, people who are alone and socially isolated from the world aren't going to, their outcomes aren't going to be good as, as good as those who are engaged. And for many people, it was a forced isolation. Older people, in people's bubbles, older people just simply missed out and they had to manage their own bubbles.
When COVID-19 first hit, people understandably started looking around for something to compare it to, and one of the easiest to understand analogies was seasonal flu. This makes sense, right? Even though there are a lot of differences between the illnesses, there are also quite a few similarities. Both cause respiratory disease, both are transmitted by contact and droplets, so the steps you'd take to avoid the flu can also help you avoid COVID. Interestingly, New Zealand's lockdown coincided almost perfectly with what's considered flu season from about April through to as late as October when the flu is at the peak of its powers. And at the beginning of that period, there were big-time fears of what might happen if there were both outbreaks of flu and COVID. So, with about a month of flu season remaining, how have things tracked so far? Dr Nikki Turner is the director of the Immunisation Advisory Centre. What is absolutely dramatic and extraordinary is that we have seen very little flu this season at all. Not just flu, but um, a virus called RSB, respiratory syncytiovirus, which causes wheezy bronchitis, bronchiolitis in children, and nasty respiratory coughs in older people. We're seeing hardly any of that disease as well. We have had a more than 90% reduction in the usual amount of flu and RSV that we see circulating in New Zealand through winter. If you go and talk to the paediatricians in the paediatric wards, frontline EDs and in general practice, the amount of respiratory disease burden is way down this year. More than 90% reduction of flu and RSV. On the other side, since people have started going out and about and mixing and we've moved down from level four, we are seeing other respiratory viruses and everybody out there in the community will know that we're seeing coughs and colds now. So there are some other viruses that are hardy little buggers that are still hanging around. So the most common causes of common colds, the rhinovirus, the enteroviruses, they still seem to be circulating probably in similar amounts to what they usually are. But what is dramatic is the nasty ones, flu and RSV, the rates are way down. Were you expecting to see that? Not to this degree. We are all immensely surprised to see the degree to which um, social distancing, responsible management of our coughs and colds have made a difference. And of course, we did have the flu vaccination campaign as well. So we got the highest uptake of flu vaccines we've ever had. All of these different issues would have contributed to the reduction. The other thing that's contributed to the reduction is these viruses are not coming in internationally like they normally do. You know, they're not just hopping on a plane and coming straight into the New Zealand community anymore. So a lot of the reduction is also about our border control. Is there perhaps an element here... Something as simple as washing your hands properly. We've all known that hand washing is important. We've all known that social distancing is important. But we haven't really been following it stringently till now. I have not been washing my hands for long enough. And I'm now religiously trying to sing happy birthday twice slowly every time (laughs) I wash my hands. And it's hard and it takes a while to develop new habits, new customs. But my goodness me, what a difference this is making. So the traditional stuff we've always known about, what a difference it's actually making. You know, all of these factors have made a dramatic difference to the reduction in respiratory disease this winter. You mentioned that sort of four to five to six hundred people die um, of the flu or flu-related complications each year. Do, do we have any idea yet as to what that number might look like this year or is it simply too early to tell at the moment? 
Now, it's too early to tell, but what we do know from frontline hospital staff is the burden of respiratory illnesses, and particularly flu and RSV, is way down. So we're still seeing plenty of respiratory illnesses in primary care, but the more severe, we're definitely seeing less of. We won't really know for the end of the season what that looks like, but it's certainly making a dramatic difference. And there's been a discussion about, in New Zealand, there's been, since um, the COVID lockdown, there's been overall a reduction in all-cause death in this country. Now, one of the reasons for that will be the reduction in um, accident rates, road traffic accidents and accidents with the lockdown. Just quickly on the road toll, it's actually looking really weird this year. Overall, deaths are down by more than 10% to 203 to the year to August 31st. And in April, we had just nine deaths on the road compared to 45 in April 2019. But in July, we had 32 deaths. That's more than twice last year's number. But the other side of it is the reduction in severe respiratory illness. So go New Zealand. This is amazing. (laughs) What a remarkable time it must be to um, be someone who knows a lot about medical stuff and has access to this sort of data and to see what is conceptually anyway almost like a global experiment unfolding before your very eyes. Yeah, it, it's actually pretty scary because, you know, we think we know a lot, but there's a hell of a lot we don't know. We've had these respiratory illnesses with us for so long, and we've really taken them for granted, all of us. So this is really dramatic. It's an extraordinary time, both for positive and for negative. And my real wish for us is we take the learnings from this and don't forget, you know, let's not forget how to wash our hands properly, how to stay away from each other when we've got infectious diseases, and how to continue to make a difference in stopping the spread of all these respiratory diseases. You know, it's such valuable learning for us. I'm terrified we're going to forget again. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so other people can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Rangi Poak and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Dr. Katie Groom, Dr. Hamish Jamison and Dr. Nikki Turner. Matewa. <laughs>